0: If you enjoy Imagineer Podcast, you will love Imagineer Society. You can learn more about it by going to patreon.com slash imagineerpodcast. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. As Walt Disney once said, it takes a lot of money to make these dreams come true. An Imagineer Podcast is no exception in order to keep our podcast free for listeners. We, of course, have expenses related to hosting our website and the podcast itself, equipment, And that really just scratches the surface. And I believe that no matter how much you are willing or able to contribute to the show, you deserve a little bit of uh, rewards in return for that. So if you join and even if you're just willing to contribute or able to contribute, $1 a month, which is a total of $12 a year, you still get perks and rewards in return. Of course, the more you contribute, the more perks you get. Certain perks include things like access to a private Facebook group, access to my close friends list on Instagram, live Q&As that are held just for Imagineer Society members. We also do monthly video calls with a small group of listeners and myself. We hop on a video call and just chat about all things Disney or anything else that's on our mind. You also get early access to every podcast episode, bonus podcast episodes just for Imagineer Society members, and there's a lot more. And again, you can learn more all about that by going to patreon.com slash imagineer podcast. Thanks Always to all of our Imagineer Society listeners, and I appreciate your support for the show. Trolleys and Haircuts. Welcome to the Car Barn. There's some more Disney history to explore here, but first I promised you the answer to your last trivia question. And don't worry, I know I still owe you the answer to our question about Cinderella Castle. I'll be sharing the answer to that one later in the tour. First, let me repeat our Walt Disney trivia question. Which of these jobs did Walt Disney have before starting his first animation company? A, a newspaper delivery boy. B, a train vendor selling snacks to passengers. C, an ambulance driver for the Red Cross, or D, all of the above? If you answered choice D, you are correct. Walt had all of those jobs at some point, delivering newspapers for his father's Kansas City Star Route, working summers on a train selling concessions to passengers, and driving ambulances in the Red Cross when he wanted to join the Army in World War I but was too young to enlist. Before we head into the car barn, let's first head over to the windows closest to the backstage gate, which is to your left if you're facing the front door of the barn. The first window reads Brogy's Buggies, Handmade Wagons, Surreys, and Sleighs, Roger Brogy Wheelwright. It's only appropriate that this is the first window we truly analyze up close because Roger Brogy was Walt Disney's first Imagineer and the person who helped Walt build his own miniature trains and his backyard train set. If Walt considered the Wed Enterprises' model shop his playground, Roger Brogy would be considered one of Walt's best friends. At the Disney Studios and Wed Enterprises, Roger designed some tremendous creations for Disney, including the Walt Disney World, Disneyland, and Santa Fe Railroad, the special effects for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the monorail and Matterhorn bobsleds with the help of Imagineer Bob Gurr, Who also helped Roger develop the first human audio-animatronic figure for Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, and various other projects for Disneyland and Walt Disney World. The windows on Main Street have a rather fun way of paying tribute to the people who helped make the Disney company what it is today, and this nod to Roger's craftsmanship is only fitting to be the first window here on the car barn. Proceeding to the next window on our right, we see the words Owen Pope, Harness maker, feed and grain, supplies, leather goods, and saddles a specialty. Not surprisingly, Owen Pope and his wife Dolly are two real people in Disney history, and they have an even more direct relationship with the car barn than Roger Brogy. In 1951, Walt Disney hired them to put together livestock for Disneyland in what would become the Disneyland Pony Farm, which later became the Circle D Corral and was eventually replaced by Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Walt even had a house built for them at Disneyland so they could better take care of the livestock and they were the only residents of Disneyland. In 1971, they then moved to Orlando to start the Tri-Circle-D Ranch at Disney's Fort Wilderness campground. Walt always had a fondness for nature and particularly for horses, which dates back to his days in Marceline, so it was only fitting to add a tribute to those who helped bring horses to Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Today, the car barn is where the Magic Kingdom houses its horse-drawn trolleys and horses. At certain times of the day, you can even head in to visit the livestock. At other times of the day, particularly in the morning or afternoon, you can also hop on one of those trolleys for a ride down Main Street, USA, which is perhaps one of the most authentic experiences to bring you back to Walt's early days in Marceline. Continuing over to our right, you'll find the Harmony Barbershop hidden in the corner. Believe it or not, this is indeed a working barbershop operating from 9 in the morning until 5.45 in the afternoon most days. The Harmony Barbershop offers real haircuts from state-licensed cosmetologists for children and adults of all ages, and they even accept walk-ins if there's a time slot available. Their real specialty, however, is offering a child's first haircut. Fittingly called My First Haircut, A friendly Disney cast member doesn't just cut your child's hair, but makes it a truly memorable experience, sprinkling a dash of pixie dust and providing him or her with a commemorative Mickey ears hat, keepsake lock of hair, and official milestone certificate. Families often take the trip to Disney for this particular occasion because Disney does it so well, as they do for just about everything. The Harmony Barbershop is also the home of a little musical group you might have heard of or even seen here on Main Street USA, Dapper Dance. With their colorful, pinstripe suits and beautiful voices, they're certainly hard to miss and draw quite a crowd when they perform. Fitting to the land, the Dapper Dance Quartet performs a series of American and Disney classics that'll make you feel like you've stepped back in time. Speaking of history, the origin of this group dates back to 1957, when Tommy Walker, the entertainment director for Disneyland, wanted to add some more turn-of-the-century atmosphere to this part of the park and originally called the group the Main Street Quartet. The group's first bassist, TJ Marker, however, decided on the name Dapper Dan, referencing a phrase from the era that meant a well-dressed, well-groomed gentleman. Walt loved watching them perform, and the idea was of course brought to Walt Disney World when the Magic Kingdom opened. If anyone is interested in learning even more about this group, I recommend looking for an article written by Disney historian Jim Korkis, who wrote an extensive piece on the history of this quartet. We're going to head to our final section of Town Square in just a second, but I'd first like to take a pit stop back near the middle of the square, because there's a statue here many don't notice, but one that's a rather touching tribute. You'll find the statue of Roy and Minnie Mouse on a park bench in the corner of the central square closest to the Emporium. While many people around the world know the name Walt Disney, not quite as many are as familiar with his older brother Roy. In reality, Roy was Walt's business partner and perhaps the man responsible for making Walt's dreams come true. In short, Walt was the idea man and Roy was the financier, helping to ensure the financial stability of the company and to gather funding for projects Walt wanted to build. As a matter of fact, Roy was the man responsible for inventing attraction sponsorships, which helped pay for Disneyland, the Magic Kingdom, Epcot, and beyond. Like any loving older brother, Roy cared dearly for Walt and wanted to see his visions come to life. And although they frequently disagreed, sometimes getting into heated arguments over the direction of the company, Roy would often concede when he knew Walt was particularly passionate about an idea. The Florida Project was Walt's final vision. When Walt became sick in the fall of 1966, he characteristically kept a happy face around the studio and continued working on Disney World, perhaps feeling that he might even be able to conquer the illness like he did any other challenge thrown his way. Weeks later, however, Walt checked himself into the hospital. Not long after, on December 15th, 1966, Walt passed away from circulatory failure due to stage 4 lung cancer, an unfortunate result of his years of chain-smoking. The day that Walt passed, his brother Roy was at his bedside, listening to Walt's vision for Epcot, which he tried to explain to Roy by tracing a map on the ceiling with his fingers, using the ceiling tiles as grids in a blueprint, Walt asked Roy to do whatever he could to ensure the future of the company, and Roy took that message to heart. The day that Walt passed, Roy remained by his younger brother's side, gently massaging his feet, promising he would do whatever it took to bring his dream to life. Roy was now 73 years old and approaching retirement, but he continued working on Disney World, changing the name to Walt Disney World in honor of Walt, and covering the clock tower of City Hall with the words October 1st, 1971, a reminder that nobody was to rest on his laurels because Disney would be opening the park on schedule. Sure enough, on October 1st, 1971, Walt Disney World opened right on schedule thanks to Roy's determination and leadership. It had been a rough five years of work. Roy didn't have much time to grieve for his brother's loss. There was work to be done, and he saw the opening of the new park as a way to honor his brother's legacy. With the park open, Roy decided to finally retire, but the heartbreak of no longer having his little brother and lifelong business partner by his side was too much to bear, and the added five years of intense work took a toll on his health. Just two months after Walt Disney World opened, on December 20th, 1971, Roy Disney passed away, able to rest on the legacy he helped bring to life for Walt. To honor Roy's life, Blaine Gibson, a former Walt Disney Imagineer famous for his many sculptures and animatronic figures, created the Sharing the Magic statue here in Town Square. With Mickey Mouse standing by Walt's side and the partner statue, which we'll see a bit later in the tour, Blaine decided that Roy should instead be seated next to Minnie Mouse. If you look at this statue, you might notice that Minnie is sitting right next to Roy in the middle of the bench rather than at the end. This was a conscious choice on Blaine's part to make Roy seem more approachable since he often remained behind the scenes and thus is a bit lesser known to the public eye. The park bench was originally closed off to guests by a fence, but the company later made the decision to place it within reach so guests could sit next to Roy and Minnie for a picture. In addition, you might notice that Roy is holding Minnie's hand from underneath, a detail meant to show how Roy supported his brother's dreams. Like Walt's statue, this tribute is meant to remind us that Roy forever lives on in the Magic Kingdom, looking down with joy on what he helped accomplish for his little brother and millions of guests around the world every year. Let's now wrap up our tour of Town Square by heading to the final corner of the area, which is adjacent to Tony's Town Square Restaurant. As you approach the section of the square, you might notice that the backstage gate has a couple of advertisements painted onto the wall. While the one on the right advertises a bicycle shop, the one on the left contains a tribute you'll perhaps recognize by now. The ad reads, River excursions! Explore the beautiful Mississippi River. Passengers may rest assured. Pleasurable voyage. Steam-powered sternwheeler. And underneath the picture of the steamboat reads, P.S. Marceline, a symbolic way of representing your pleasant tour through Walt's beloved Marceline. Let's now head into the Chapeau, which sells a variety of headwear. Once inside, see if you can find an old-fashioned telephone on the wall, pick up the receiver, and take a listen to the conversation that you hear between a mother and a daughter that live upstairs to the shop. To add some context, the telephone used to live in the shop next door, in what used to be called the Main Street Market House, which is now the confectionery. While the store today is the perfect place to purchase some deliciously sweet confections, The Main Street Market House was an old-fashioned goods store that represented what it was like to go shopping for groceries at the turn of the 19th century. Take a listen to the three-minute conversation and join me back in front of the confectionery when you're ready to continue. Main Street South For this next part, we'll have to step out from under the shade for just a minute or two. Let's stand in front of the confectionery and take a look at the buildings on Main Street. How many stories tall do they look from this angle? Depending on the building, the windows tell us that these structures are either two stories or three stories tall. While they might look to be three stories, they're actually closer to two. The windows, bricks, balconies, and other details are all part of a facade an illusion to make the buildings look taller than they really are. In reality, the ground level facades are the closest to a full story tall, the second level is a bit shorter, and the third level is the shortest. Most adults would barely be able to fit inside if the third story were accessible to guests. It's an old movie trick that Disney and other studios continue to use to this very day, which makes buildings and other structures appear larger than they really are. Cinderella Castle is a great example as the castle appears to be hundreds of stories tall but stands at just 189 feet. And perhaps the most dramatic use of forced perspective is Expedition Everest Legend of the Forbidden Mountain over at Disney's Animal Kingdom which stands at 199 feet tall but appears to be thousands of feet taller. To accomplish this effect, the Imagineers had to use such dramatic forced perspective that they hand-painted tiny snowdrifts at the top of the mountain to make them appear miles in the distance. Next, let's take a look at the first floor window displays on Main Street. Do you notice anything unusual about them? In most department stores or shops, the window displays can sometimes be a couple of feet off the ground. But Disney knows that one of its primary audiences is young children who might not be tall enough to see that high off the ground. As a result, Main Street's windows are all low to the pavement, low enough that a toddler could see the displays at eye level from a stroller or standing up. When it comes to our second key, courtesy, the Walt Disney Imagineers keep children in mind as much as they do adults. Let's now take a look at the windows in the front corner of the confectionery way up at the top. It might be a bit hard to read from here, but the window in the top middle says Roy O Disney. The window to its left says, if we can dream it, we can do it. And to the right says, Dreamers and Doers Development Company. Of course, this is a fitting tribute to Walt's older brother who co-founded the company. Think for a second though why it's placed here above the confectionery. Is it because Roy was fond of sweets? Not necessarily. Is it because it's by his statue? Another good guess, but not quite the primary reason. The real answer has to do with the order of the windows. Remember how we referenced the names in the windows being like the credits in a movie, and how most guests lean to the right side of Main Street? Well, that makes this window the first one that's on the main strip of Main Street USA. In addition, the credits of a movie traditionally begin with the producer, the person responsible for financing the film and overseeing its operations. At the Walt Disney Company, the person who best embodied this role was Roy O. Disney. Meanwhile, his brother Walt could best be thought of as the director, the leading visionary in charge of coordinating the creative pieces of the film. As such, we'll see Walt's name appropriately placed a bit later on. The second floor windows of the confectionery also pay tribute to some of the producers of Walt Disney World, those who most directly supported Roy when building the Magic Kingdom. For example, you'll find the names Pete Markham, Dane Dingman, Ron Bowman, Glenn Durflinger, and more. Each one designed specific components of the Magic Kingdom. For example, Glenn Durflinger helped design Fantasyland and Cinderella Castle, and Pete Markham organized and led the Buena Vista Construction Company, which was the firm responsible for physically constructing the Magic Kingdom. The truth is that there are a lot of names in the windows on Main Street, so many that it would be impractical to go through them all. Don't worry, though, I'll be pointing out a few of the most significant ones and a few others with some fun stories worth telling. At this point, you might also notice a rather pleasant aroma coming from the confectionery. Of all the human senses, smell can trigger memory perhaps the most effectively. Disney knows this fact well and also understands how smell can create a more realistic experience. It's why you can smell burning wood in the burning of the Library of Alexandria scene on Spaceship Earth at Epcot, and why you can smell a dusty aroma on the Haunted Mansion, even though there's no real fire on Spaceship Earth, and not enough dust on the Haunted Mansion to trigger that kind of smell. On Main Street, the smell from the confectionery is actually pumped out from the store onto the street. This effect helps to trigger pleasant memories of enjoying these sweets, and it doubles as a way to grab your attention as you pass by so you're more likely to step into the shop much like an ice cream parlor in your local town might draw you in with the sweet aroma of waffle cones, or a bakery might emit that delicious smell of fresh bread. If you're tempted, feel free to step inside the confectionery for a treat for this next part of the tour. Otherwise, we'll keep moving forward. While we're here, take a quick look at the color of the buildings. What colors do you see? Some are off-white, while others are shades of red, blue, yellow, or green. Can you say the same about your local Main Street? Chances are, probably not. Although the colors are muted so as to not appear too loud or unpleasant, the colors in Disney are brighter than they are in the rest of the world. Most Main Streets across the world might appear gray or brown, but Disney is a much happier kind of place. Color is no accident at Disney, and each color choice is very carefully selected to evoke certain emotions. For example, The purple and silver undertones of Tomorrowland evoke a futuristic world in a distant galaxy, while the bright blues and pinks of Fantasyland convey a sense of childlike wonder and play. Let's now head over to the clock on your left just past the arcade sign. There should be an awning nearby as well in case you'd like to step into the shade. While you're over there, take a moment to think about how many clocks you've encountered since you left your hotel room or since you parked your car at the transportation and ticket center. How many have you seen since you entered the park? How many do you see right now? The truth is that Disney doesn't place many clocks around the parks. Not including fast pass return clocks, which for obvious reasons are added whenever an attraction receives a fast pass queue, Main Street might have the most clocks at the Magic Kingdom. There are two on the top of the train station, one on each side, one located on the first floor of the train station, one at the top of City Hall, one on Cinderella Castle, and the one right here on the side of Main Street, USA. To help you escape reality, you have to escape time itself. And Disney knows the best way to escape time is to place only as many clocks as needed in the parks. Again, this tactic was more effective in 1971, unless you wore a watch to the parks. The clocks here on Main Street serve as a courtesy to guests so they know how much time is left before the park opens or closes, or before the parade and fireworks begin, since most guests will watch those shows here on Main Street. Beyond the hub, clocks become much harder to find, which helps you to truly be in the moment and not worry quite as much about how much time is left in the day. Let's now take a moment to think about this particular clock in front of you. What's different about it? You might notice that it has the Citizen brand logo and even looks like a Citizen watch. That's thanks to a sponsorship with Citizen in 2018 that commemorated Mickey and Minnie's 90th birthday. Remember that sponsorships like these go back to Roy's time when he used brand sponsors to pay for new attractions and routine park maintenance. The location of this watch is no accident either. It's strategically placed right near the entrance to Uptown Jewelers where you can buy, you guessed it, Citizen watches. To the right of Uptown Jewelers is another store with a sign that reads, watches. If you take a look on the second floor, you'll notice a window that says, The Main Street Diary, True Tales of Inspiration, Lee A. Cockerell, Editor-in-Chief. Lee joined the Walt Disney Company in 1990 to oversee the opening of Disneyland Paris, and he later became the Executive Director of Walt Disney World, a position he held for 10 years. Lee was best known for his inspiring leadership and remarkable communication with cast members. He also crafted a leadership program that helped train over 7,000 leaders at the Walt Disney World Resort. Turning back to Uptown Jewelers, let's head over to Center Street, which is the side street to your right on the corner. Pass by the store and take a look up at the second floor windows. Just above the street lamp is a window that we're going to reference. Amazingly, Center Street is one of those sections of the park that's relatively quiet. When I was a cast member working at Walt Disney World, I used to love finding a quiet table on Center Street with a cup of coffee in the early morning or a bowl of ice cream at night. It's one of those sections of Main Street where you really feel like you're in the Marceline of Walt's childhood. Alright, let's see if you can find the window we're talking about. It'll be just above the sign that says China. Up on the second story window are the words, Elias Disney, Contractor Established 1895. Elias was Walt's father, and his career was met with a series of failures, all of which took a toll on the family. Elias was a carpentry contractor working on the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago in the late 1890s up until the time that Walt was born. When the family decided to move to Marceline to get away from the city, Elias took up farming, but he quickly learned that farming was not one of his leading skills. Eventually, when business failure brought the family to Kansas City, Elias bought a Kansas City Star paper route. Walt would spend years working on that newspaper route. Starting at the age of 9 years old, he would begin his shift before sunrise, often in the snow or pouring rain, and deliver newspapers by bicycle. He would then return home before 6 a.m., take a nap, and go to school on weekdays, only to come home and deliver the evening edition of the paper before bed. On Saturday, Walt would collect fees in addition to delivering the paper, and on Sunday, he would deliver twice the number of papers. There were times when Walt would deliver a newspaper, but the customer wouldn't see it outside, and so Walt would have to return to deliver another copy, often to the ire of his father, who was prone to being short-tempered. If a winter storm had accumulated a large amount of snow, it would take Walt significantly longer to deliver each paper, and he would often fall asleep in a snowdrift, beat with the exhaustion from his unforgiving schedule. The route wore on Walt made it difficult for him to concentrate in school, took away much of the free time he would have otherwise enjoyed in his childhood, and left him little savings when Elias's business failed yet again. Walt would remember those years well and how they contrasted with his earlier years spent in Marceline. He would also remember his father's failures despite Elias's tenacity to make a business work. The years of hardship helped to form Walt's relentless work ethic and business sense, and it gave him a greater appreciation for family, free time, and fun. Although Walt and Elias didn't always see eye to eye, Walt loved his father, and he understood the lengths Elias went to in order to provide for the family. Walt and Roy would remain close with their parents throughout the years, especially into adulthood, eventually moving Elias and Flora to a new home in 1937, one they had built near the family in Los Angeles. Walt's parents had worked hard to provide for the children, and he and Roy were thrilled they could do the same for their parents, who were now grandparents to Diane, Sharon, and Roy E. Disney. A year later, Walt's mother called about a gas leak in their home. Walt had some folks from the studio head over to fix it, but the issue persisted. On November 26th of that year, Elias and Flora's housekeeper came to the home and found the couple unconscious. She pulled them out onto the front lawn in time to save Elias, but the timing was unfortunately too late to save Walt's mom. Flora's loss was one that Walt took personally, and riddled him with guilt. Here, he and his brother had purchased their parents a beautiful new home close to the family, but in Walt's mind, he had only sealed his mother's fate. The theme of losing a mother or a parent turned up as a common theme in Disney movies after that, in Bambi, Cinderella, and many others. Elias also would not emotionally recover from the loss, but lived on for a few more years until the age of 82. Despite Elias' rough character, Walt knew that he was a man who cared dearly for his family and simply wanted to provide for them. With Walt and DeRoy's success and determination, their family would not want again. I know the story of Elias and Flora can be rather heavy, so let's take another quick break. Feel free to grab another snack or beverage and find an empty table here on Center Street. When we resume, we'll switch gears to something uplifting. I'll answer a question Disney fans around the world have asked for generations. Does Disney have a secret underground city? Before we answer that question, I have another fun hidden detail to point out here on Center Street. Near the Crystal Art sign on the second floor is a window that says, Voice Singing, Private Lessons. Next to that is a window for dance lessons, including ballet, waltz, and tap. Listen carefully during the break and see if you can hear the lessons through the open windows. It's one of those many small details most guests will miss, but adds a layer of realism to those who notice. Let's face it, planning a trip to Disney requires a lot of work. And even just thinking about where you're going to stay can be a big decision. There are about 30 resorts at Walt Disney World alone. And then, of course, if you're visiting the Disneyland Resort or traveling on Disney Cruise Line, there are so many choices and decisions that go into planning your trip. If you're like me, I love planning every last detail, but sometimes you just need a little bit of extra help or perhaps are, you know, have a few questions about how to really Maximize your budget and make the most of your Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, vacation, or any other Disney destination. And that's why I partner with Academy Travel. Academy Travel is a diamond earmarked travel agency. That is a level of distinction that is recognized by Disney. It's actually given by Disney and is the highest level of distinction that they award to travel agencies. They have platinum. Uh, earmarked agencies they have diamond earmarked agencies and other levels and diamond is the highest one academy travel is one of only three agencies with that distinction and in fact they are the number one travel agency for booking travel to disney destinations and what's amazing about them is they've been doing this for over 25 years and they do it all for free to those who are booking a trip and essentially disney is the one who ends up paying them a little bit of a commission whenever they book a trip but the amazing thing for you is that they can take out a lot of that guesswork and help you to plan the perfect vacation. They'll even book the hotel for you and take a lot of that guesswork out of planning your trip and in many cases can even help to save you money because they're aware of all the discounts that are currently available and again can help you to maximize your budget and save you a little bit of money on your next Disney trip. The easiest way to get a free quote from Academy Travel is to head to the Imagineer podcast website which is Plain and simple, ImagineYourPodcast.com. I have a uh, travel drop down at the top of the website. And if you click on any of those destinations, it'll take you right to a free quote form. And if you just fill that out, a representative from Academy Travel, they have over a thousand representatives, will get back to you and help you to plan your next Disney vacation. So again, head to ImagineYourPodcast.com. Click on that travel drop down at the top and request a free quote from Academy Travel for your next Disney vacation. The Utilidors. Welcome back. By now, I hope you found a quiet bench on Center Street and are ready to continue our Main Street adventure. Let me first pose the same question I asked before the break. Have you heard the tales of Disney's secret underground city? Throughout Disney history, the public has speculated about these mysterious tunnels under the park. Surprisingly, Disney hasn't made too much of a secret about this part of the company, and they even bring guests down to see the tunnels in person on the Keys to the Kingdom tour, which is available to book on the Walt Disney World website or over the phone. In short, this underground city is indeed a real place, although the nature of these tunnels is often dramatized or embellished. At Disney, these underground tunnels are known as the Utilidors, a portmanteau that's an abbreviated name for utility corridors. The history of the Utilidors goes back to Walt Disney himself and his efforts to keep the illusion of escaping reality. As legend has it, Walt was visiting Disneyland one day and spending some time in the park. As he was walking through Tomorrowland, he noticed a Frontierland cast member dressed in cowboy attire walking through this futuristic land. It was a clash of theme, a fault in the show of the park. Walt then realized that cast members could only enter and exit the park at certain points and so it would be fairly common to see someone walking to or from his shift by means of another land. Walt vowed not to make the same mistake when building Disney World and he even took the concept a step further. Much like at Disneyland, cast members at the Magic Kingdom use a different entrance than guests to enter and exit the park. Their journey to work begins at a parking lot about a half a mile behind the Magic Kingdom. They then must board a bus that drops them off behind Fantasyland on the Utilidor level. From there, cast members enter the tunnels under the park and walk to one of the assigned entrances into their respective lands, where they climb a set of stairs or take an elevator and pass through a backstage door or gate to seamlessly enter their assigned area. The process works the same way when leaving for the day, just reversed. Unlike the main level of the park, the Utilidors can get rather confusing, especially for a new cast member who's trying to get to work on time. To help, Disney designed a series of signs and maps and even color-coded the walls to ensure cast members know where they are and where they're going at all times. The Utilidors also include costume drop-off and pickup, since Disney has a team dedicated to laundering costumes for cast members free of charge, even if they decide to do so every day. Cast members can also find management offices, break rooms, calendars, and cast activity boards, workstations, food courts, vending machines, and other administrative facilities. Keeping with Disney heritage, the Utilidors also include some historical Disney photos, but what surprises many is the choice of music. You won't hear yo ho yo ho a Pirate's Light for Me or Grim Grinning Ghosts down in the Utilidors. Instead, cast members enjoy listening to some of Orlando's local radio stations as a temporary reprieve from the park's continuous music loops. Beyond servicing cast members throughout the day, the Utilidors also service the park's maintenance needs. Many of the HVAC systems and ride operations are housed in safeguarded rooms that only approved maintenance teams can access, and even the servers that play music on attractions and voice the animatronics live in these underground tunnels. Another fun piece of trivia involves one of the largest byproducts of the park, trash. With thousands of visitors each day, it's no surprise that Disney's custodial crews move a lot of garbage, and like we discussed earlier, custodial cast members do an exceptional job of keeping trash bins from overflowing. With so much trash, it seems likely that you would smell a dumpster every now and then, even if just near the backstage gates. Well, Disney thought of that too. The Magic Kingdom actually has an ingenious garbage disposal system that keeps trash centralized and away from guests. Custodial cast members in each area dispose of trash in portable containers and deposit the trash in collection bins backstage. These points are part of the Magic Kingdom's AVAC system, which stands for Automated Vacuum Assisted Collection System. At designated moments, the AVAX system vacuums the trash, sending it hurling at the speed of a car through tubes in the utilidors to a specific collection area behind the park, where the Reedy Creek Sanitation Department then comes to pick up the trash from this backstage location multiple times a day. While many credit Walt for creating this ingenious system of underground tunnels, we also have to thank Admiral Joe Fowler, who spent 25 years working for the Walt Disney Company after retiring from the U.S. Navy. Admiral Fowler was Director of Construction for Disney's Buena Vista Construction Company and was one of the key individuals responsible for overseeing the development of the Magic Kingdom. One of the things that Joe knew well was the fact that you can't build underground in Florida because the state is primarily made of swampland, especially in this spot of Central Florida. To solve the problem, the Utilidors were actually built on the ground level of the park. In creating the Seven Seas Lagoon and Bay Lake, mounds of dirt were then poured over the Utilidors and settled into place, at which point work began on the Magic Kingdom Park itself. As a result, where you're sitting right now is technically the second floor of the park, 14 feet above ground level. Traveling down to the Utilidors does not take you underground, but rather back to the first floor of the park. It's impossible to notice while you're in the park of course, but if you ever do the Keys to the Kingdom tour as a guest or become a cast member at the Magic Kingdom, you'll be able to visit one of these backstage areas and physically look at the park from an outside perspective. There you can more easily see the Utilidors are at the ground level of the park and you have to walk up an incline or take a set of stairs or an elevator to get back up to the guest level of the park on the second floor. The Utilidor system is one of those hidden details most guests will never see or even realize exists, but it's perhaps one of the most important features of the park. The Utilidors allow cast members to seamlessly enter and exit the park at specific points, maintain the park's attractions and systems behind closed doors, take a break from the workday without being visible to guests, and perhaps most impressively, hurl trash at the speed of a moving car far away from the guest areas of the park to keep the Magic Kingdom smelling as clean and show-ready as possible. We're going to head back to Main Street in just a few minutes, but I'd first love to share another iconic window you can find here on the south side of Center Street, which is the side where we found the window honoring Elias Disney. Up on the second floor of the far edge of uptown jewelers is a window that says Main Street Academy of Fine Art, Painting, and Sculpture, along with the names Mary Blair, Herbert Ryman, Colin Campbell, Blaine Gibson, and Dorothea Redmond. All of these Walt Disney Imagineers contributed their talents to Disney, and the three that many Disney fans might know best are Mary Blair, Herbert Ryman, and Blaine Gibson. Mary Blair was a brilliant artist known for her bold, modern color palettes. In addition to working in classic films like Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, and Peter Pan, Mary also contributed to some iconic attractions for Disneyland, the Magic Kingdom, and Epcot, most notably It's a Small World for the 1964 World's Fair. If you visit Disney's contemporary resort, you'll also find Mary's multi-story murals in the Grand Canyon Concourse, which are visible if you're riding the Walt Disney World Express or Resort Monorail through the hotel. Like Mary, Blaine Gibson worked closely with Walt Disney and had a major impact on the attractions of the park. We discussed Blaine earlier as the sculptor of the Sharing the Magic and Partner statues depicting Roy and Walt Disney. He also designed many of the animatronic figures for the park, including those seen on Pirates of the Caribbean, the Haunted Mansion, and the Hall of Presidents. Meanwhile, Herb Ryman was best known as the man who drew the first public sketch of Disneyland, which was completed over a single weekend with Walt working at his side. Herb also contributed concepts for attractions like Pirates of the Caribbean and the Jungle Cruise, and he art-directed classic movies like Dumbo and Fantasia. Continuing our tour, we're going to turn our attention to the northern half of Main Street. Feel free to browse Uptown Jewelers to explore some of the watches and other merchandise on display. When you're ready to continue, meet me in front of the Crystal Art Store on the corner of Center Street and Main Street. We have several more windows to point out and a few more stories to tell. Main Street North Before we continue our tour, let's try another trivia question. Before he started the Disney Brothers Studios, Walt had another business located in Kansas City, Missouri which he formed in 1921. What was the name of that company? Is the answer A. Universal Pictures, B. Disney MGM Studios, C. laugh gram Studios, or D. Wonderland Studios? If you answered C. laugh gram Studios, you are correct. In fact, long before Walt created the Alice in Wonderland film, he developed a series called Alice's Wonderland that featured a young actress, Virginia Davis, interacting with a series of cartoon characters, a technique that would later be developed and perfected in films like Bedknobs and Broomsticks and Mary Poppins. Let's now continue our tour by exploring a few windows nearby. There's actually quite a few that I'd like to point out. First up is on the second floor of the Emporium, directly across from the Crystal Art Store. The middle window reads, Center for Leadership Development and Mentoring. Meg Gilbert Crofton, Founder. We start leaders on their journeys. After serving as the Executive Vice President for Walt Disney World, a role she held from 1993 until 2006, Meg Crofton was promoted to the President of Walt Disney World, the fourth in the resort's history. From 2006 to 2013, Meg oversaw the development of New Fantasyland at the Magic Kingdom, the creation of several new resorts, and the rebranding of Disney MGM Studios to Disney's Hollywood Studios. In her final years at Disney, Meg was promoted to oversee all Disney parks in the United States and France. Meg left a positive impact on the company and the parks, and she was thus honored with this window here on Main Street when she retired from the company in 2015. Next, let's take a look below Meg's window back on the first floor. There's a door that has become famous with cast members and is one of the many tributes to Walt. The words on the door read, Open since 71. Magic Kingdom Casting Agency. It takes people to make the dream a reality. Walter Elias Disney, Founder and Director Emeritus. Walt Disney World employs nearly 70,000 cast members, and this door serves as a kind of tribute to every one of them, past and present. The quote on the door, it takes people to make the dream a reality, is a famous quote that Walt Disney claimed about his cast members and even the guests. It certainly takes a city of people, literally, to make the Disney parks come to life with thousands of roles and responsibilities. Every hour of every day, there are cast members at work, even overnight crews who clean and ready the parks for guests the following day. It's why the parks always appear clean and new every morning, like you're the first guests to ever walk down Main Street, USA. Walt always wanted his parks this way, and it's inspiring to see these kinds of operations continue even decades after his passing. Before we move further down Main Street, let's do an about face and check out some of the windows above the Crystal Arts Store. Directly above the corner entrance on the second floor is a window that reads, M.T. Lott's Real Estate Investments, a friend in deeds is a friend indeed, Don Tatum, President, Subsidiaries, Tomahawk Properties, Latin American Development, I-4 Corporation, Bay Lake Properties, Reedy Creek Ranchlands, Compass East Corporation. Earlier in the tour, I promised that I'd point out some of the names of the dummy corporations that Walt and Roy formed to purchase more than 27,000 acres for Walt Disney World, and here they are. A couple of these names definitely showcase the Disney Brothers humor, especially M.T. Lot, which of course, when you say quickly, sounds like Empty Lot, and I-4 Corporation, which is a homonym for the I-4 interstate that spans Daytona to Tampa passing right by the entrance to the Walt Disney World Resort. Two additional names here, Bay Lake Properties and Reedy Creek Ranch Lands, pay tribute to the names of some real places formed by Disney here in Central Florida. If you've been to Disney's Contemporary Resort, Disney's Wilderness Lodge, or the campsites at Disney's Fort Wilderness Resort, you've probably encountered Bay Lake, a large body of water less than a mile from where we're now standing. Likewise, at any point that you're in Walt Disney World, you're in the Disney-created municipality, Lake Buena Vista. Walt was such a forward thinker that he wanted more than just a theme park. He truly wanted to create the city of tomorrow. In doing so, he envisioned his own government municipality, a privately owned public service that would meet Walt's standards of excellence, technical innovation, and environmental responsibility. Walt had originally thought of creating a real city with residents who would be citizens of that territory, but he soon learned that this would mean these citizens would have the right to vote on all additions and changes to Walt Disney World, a power he wasn't quite ready to share with a democratic body. Creating a real city would also create additional political complexities, including the need for mayors, governmental agencies, and other political departments. Instead, the Walt Disney Company created the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which would give Walt Disney World the ability to create and manage its own localized utilities, building codes, sanitation, permits, public records, and even its own fire departments. While the company also has a close relationship with the local Orlando Municipalities and Emergency Services, Reedy Creek enables Disney to create and meet its own high standards of running a city without technically being a formal city. One of the ways that Walt's final vision has come to life. The last part of this window to point out is the name Don Tatum. Don served as the first president of Walt Disney World and worked with Rory to bring the resort to life. After Roy's passing in 1971, Don became the first chief executive officer of the Walt Disney Company to not be part of the Disney family. Don then went on to support the opening of Epcot and Tokyo Disneyland as the president of Walt Disney World, soon after ending his 25-year tenure at the company. For these reasons and more, Don's name forever stands here on Main Street, USA. Above Don's window is a tribute to another important executive of the Walt Disney Company, Frank Wells. His window is on the third floor of the Crystal Art Store and reads, Seven Summits Expeditions, Frank G. Wells, President, for those who want to do it all. Perhaps one of the most memorable tragedies from the modern Disney age focuses on Frank Wells, who served as the President and Chief Operating Officer of the Walt Disney Company from 1984 until 1994. Frank worked alongside Michael Eisner, who served as the chief executive officer at the time. Before they joined the company, Disney was in poor financial shape and even in danger of being bought out and sold in pieces by corporate raiders, who saw the opportunity for short-term financial gain. The buyout would have meant the end of the Walt Disney Company as we know it. Michael and Frank came into the company just in time to save the day, and they led the Walt Disney Company to one of the most prosperous times in its history. Operating together much like Walt and Roy did, with Michael Eisner serving as the visionary and Frank Wells serving as the savvy head of operations, the duo revived Disney feature animation which resulted in what we call the Disney Renaissance, producing hit films like The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Pocahontas, Mulan, and many more. They also revived the Disney parks and created a handful of new theme parks and resorts, including Disneyland Paris and Disney MGM Studios, and they established Disney Vacation Club, Disney's vacation ownership program. During the period from 1984 to 1994, Michael and Frank increased the stock price from $1 a share to $12 a share, helping to solidify the company's financial stability and they revived the Disney brand, spawning a new generation of devoted Disney fans. If you grew up in the 1980s or 1990s, much of your love for the Disney brand can likely be attributed back to these two leaders. While Michael Eisner went on to run the company as Chief Executive Officer until 2005, a span of 21 years, tragedy struck about halfway through Eisner's tenure. Throughout his life, Frank had a strong sense of adventure, and he was most notably a mountaineering enthusiast. In fact, one of his personal goals was to climb the tallest mountain on each continent in a single year, which is the reason why his Windows title is Seven Summits. Of course, a craving for adventure often comes with risks, and in 1994, Frank passed away in a helicopter accident on a ski trip in Nevada. His death was a shock to the entire Walt Disney Company, and especially hit Michael on a personal level. It was a tragedy that felt oddly familiar to the shock of Walt's passing. After Frank passed away, he was honored with a dedication in the opening credits of The Lion King, which had its grand premiere on June 24th of that year, his own building at the Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, a tribute on Matterhorn bobsleds, and a window on Main Street, USA. Frank's impact will forever be remembered as one that helped save the Walt Disney Company. I know tragic stories can often be disheartening, so we're going to sweeten things up with a stroll over to the Main Street Bakery, which is just one store past Crystal Arts. On the way, take a quick look across the street just beyond Main Street fashion and apparel. Up on the second floor, you'll find a window that says, Dr. Card Walker, Licensed Practitioner of Psychiatry and Justice of the Peace. We never close, except for golf. This window is dedicated to Esmond Cardin Walker, better known as Card Walker. Card worked at the Walt Disney Company as the vice president of advertising and sales before being promoted to the company's board of directors in 1960. When Roy Disney passed away, he became president of the Walt Disney Company and then CEO in 1976, a role he held until 1980. He then remained with Disney as chairman of the board until 1983 to oversee the development of Epcot and Tokyo Disneyland. Even after he retired, he remained a consultant for the Walt Disney Company until 1990, concluding a career at the organization that spanned more than 60 years of service. In addition to his formal service at the Walt Disney Company, Card also played a critical role for the Disney family when Walt and Roy were still alive the mediator, or perhaps more fitting to his window signage, the justice of the peace. Just like any ordinary brothers, Walt and Roy were bound to argue, and their arguments often became heated, especially when Walt's dreams for a future project conflicted with Roy's sense of fiscal pragmatism. When Walt and Roy couldn't come to terms, Card stepped in. Like a good psychiatrist, he knew exactly how to appeal to the brothers and bring them to an agreement. Card's impact on Disney is certainly worthy of this window here on Main Street USA. Just to the left of Card Walker's window above Main Street Fashion and Apparel is a window dedicated to another set of legendary cast members. On the left side of the store, up on the second floor, is a window that says The Big Wheel Company. Just below the picture of a bicycle are the names Dave Gengenbach, Bob Gurr, George McGinnis, and Bill Watkins. Given the theme of the other windows on Main Street, you would probably guess that these names have something to do with wheels, and if you did, you'd be correct. All four of these Walt Disney Imagineers have had something to do with the vehicles and conveyances around the Disney parks. For example, Dave Gengenbach designed the boat conveyance for Pirates of the Caribbean and the design of Space Mountain. Bill Watkins worked with Dave on Space Mountain and also contributed to the design of Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. George McGinnis also worked on Space Mountain, and he designed the Jeeps for Indiana Jones Adventure at Disneyland. Perhaps the most legendary of the four, Bob Gurr, designed over 100 projects for Walt Disney Imagineering, including the Autopia cars, Matterhorn bobsleds, the Disneyland and Walt Disney World monorails, the Abraham Lincoln animatronic from the 1964 World's Fair attraction Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, the Omnimover system, found at the Haunted Mansion and Spaceship Earth, and many more. Fittingly, Bob has a famous quote that states, If it moves on wheels at Disneyland, I probably designed it. If you'd like to hear more directly from Bob Gurr, definitely check out my interview with this Disney legend in Imagineer Podcast Episode 67, available on your favorite podcast app. Alright, who's hungry? Our next segment of this tour covers the Main Street Bakery, Casey's Corner, and the Plaza Ice Cream Parlor. Feel free to grab a snack and a beverage from any of these iconic quick-service dining locations and meet me in the front of the Main Street Bakery. See you soon. If you're keeping up with Disney news online, whether that's watching YouTube videos or scrolling through your Facebook or Instagram feed or perhaps joining some Facebook groups, I find that there's a lot of really interesting articles that get circulated about what's happening at Disney, and a lot of the time it's either uh, dramatized or embellished or it's plain... Wrong. It's just a lot of rumors that get circulated about Disney that frankly aren't true. And so it has always frustrated me to try to find a reliable source of Disney news. And that's why about a year ago now, I partnered with The Kingdom Insider, which you can find more about by going to thekingdominsider.com or following The Kingdom Insider on any social media channel. Christy runs The Kingdom Insider. And what I love about Christy is that not only is she a lifelong Disney fan and a Disney historian at that. She knows a lot about Disney. She really knows her stuff. But she runs the Kingdom Insider with a high level of professionalism and journalistic ethics. You will not find clickbait with her posts or her articles. Instead, she just posts confirmed news. About Disney that has been released and confirmed by the Walt Disney Company. It's truly refreshing to see that type of content. And I encourage you all to check it out at thekingdominsider.com again and social media at the Kingdom Insider as well. And the other great thing is, she has a lot of really amazing tips to share about traveling to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, and other Disney destinations, plus even things like shopdisney.com, Disney Plus, and other ways you can bring the magic of Disney into your own home. She is a lifelong Disney fan and a mom with two young boys, travels to Disney frequently, and includes some really up-to-date and relevant information about traveling to Disney as a family. So again, I encourage you to check her out. That is why I partner with her at thekingdominsider.com or on social media at thekingdominsider.